This episode is sponsored by a donor to the Los Angeles County Fire Department Foundation. The L.A. County Fire Department Foundation is focused on supporting L.A. County firefighters and programs. It was established in 2015 and has grown considerably over the last five years. Donations have supported critical equipment purchases, life-saving wildfire education programs, diversity conferences, and many other regional fire-related needs. Visit supportlacountyfire.org. On this episode, we have Sanjay Schweig. Sanjay was born to parents of Western origin, but spent most of his youth until the age of 11 in India. His family then migrated back to Northern California, and he attended Berkeley to study medical anthropology and religious studies. He followed his passion to study medicine, yet had it in mind at the outset to approach the traditional study of medicine through a functional lens. Several years after graduating, he founded the California Center for Functional Medicine. Sanjay, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to have you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. Um, when I first uh, heard about you and the great work you're doing, which I'm excited to share with our audience, um, uh, your name stuck out and I asked you about that uh, in the beginning because with a name like that, one would anticipate they look a bit more like me of Indian origin. Uh, uh, than the you, but I, you shared with me that you've had some ex extensive experience in India. So wondering if you could share about that, please. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my parents were both Caucasian, still are, uh, but uh, developed an early interest in um, Indian culture, yoga, meditation, uh, vegetarian lifestyle, uh, even before I was born. So this is, you know, late 1960s, early 1970s, and they moved from the East Coast out to Northern California, um, where they established their home, and, and then we were born. And so all, all myself and all of our siblings, my siblings have you know, pretty unique names. Um, my name was actually made up by my mom, uh, and you know, but it's similar to the Indian name Sanjay. Uh, and you know, and I was later, you know, and so we grew up with a, with a very uh, you know, health-focused childhood, lots of mindfulness and, you know, attention to healthy organic eating and, and health, uh, integrative medicine, complementary alternative medicine, even before those terms existed, really. Uh, and then when I was uh, age five, between age five and 11, I actually lived in India with my mom and my brother. And so again, exposed to a wonderful, rich, uh, busy, you know, you know, even hectic culture there, but, you know, just such a wonderful emphasis on community and uh, connection and, um, you know, living close to the land, healthy eating, um, but also to other forms of medicine, including homeopathy, Ayurveda, herbal medicine, traditional healing, etc. So those all really informed my, you know, growth and upbringing and the healthcare we, we sought um, and, and then what I ended up bringing to my practice. No, that's fantastic. We certainly see the uh, threads of all those carrying through, all those influences from, from youth. Um, in which part of India were you? We lived mostly in Goa. Um, we spent some time in Bombay, some time in Kodai Canal, uh, Pune even. Um, but the bulk of the time was in Goa, where there was an expatriate community. Uh, a lot of people from Europe, uh, uh, various parts of the world. So it was a very much an international experience, which I really appreciated. I still really resonate with a lot of uh, of those cultures, European cultures, et cetera. And, um, you know, it was, was really grateful. It was very, um, you know, 
very different than the standard American childhood. You know, we had uh, little formal schooling, actually. We did a lot of learning on our own and yes. reading and workbooks and such, um, but a lot of just free time, creative time, uh, time to think, time to play, time to build things, run around, uh, you know, very little exposure to media, almost, you know, we didn't have a television. We could get over to some of the big cities like Mopsa, uh, and, or Panjim and, and go to the movies once in a while, but, you know, otherwise, you know, no exposure to kind of what uh, uh, a lot of kids, you know, in America in general, but especially these days are exposed to. So a lot of, a lot of creative thinking time. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Was there a specific work purpose that your parents went for or it was lifestyle? They just wanted that was to lifestyle. Yeah, it was my mom's decision. She, in a lot of ways, she actually still is over there right now. Actually, she oh. has spent more of her time in India than here in the U.S. at this point. And um, that's incredible. You go itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Do you get back to visit her? Unfortunately, no. I haven't been back since since we uh, returned to the U.S. in 1984. I would love to though, because I know that if I if and when I do go back, that um, it's just going to bring this whole flood of memories and, and, you know, recollections from my childhood that I, I forgot were there. Absolutely. Now, you said your mom is back in Goa. Is your father still with you? Yeah, he lives out here in, uh, in Northern California, um, actually just about half an hour from me here at the house where I grew up. Also. Got you. Yeah. So uh, at 11, when you came back, um, you came back to Northern California? Yes. Yep. Okay. And so yeah. that would have been what uh, sixth, seventh, sixth grade, maybe. Yeah. So entered into sixth grade. Um, okay. You know, and actually that we did a about a year, year and a half of formal schooling while we were in India. But otherwise, you know, entering into sixth grade as a, a new sixth grader was my very first introduction to American schooling. Amazing! Wow, that was pretty that was amazing. Really and challenging. And what was town very, was that in? It was in uh, in Point Reyes, uh, West Marin. And it was very challenging, you know, but I, I really adjusted over the course of those two to three years. Uh, and then uh, I, I went to, ended up going to a private high school close by, which is really competitive and, uh, you know, a, a college preparatory high school. And, um, you know, some might say stressful, um, you know, rigorous coursework, um, you know, intensive homework load, et cetera. Um, but, you know, it, it really, I, I thrived and it, it wasn't hard in that sense. I really enjoyed it. I was interested and fired up and you know i think it's just a real testament to um rethinking in a way how we educate our kids because i think a lot of times there's this, this kind of concept that they have to be performing and executing and, and you know on this really intensive you know elite track uh but you know here i was and hadn't had any experience really and then it came in and i was uh, almost because of that in a way i was still really motivated and fired up and um, you know, ended up doing really well. I graduated at the top of my class from that high school and proceeded Congrats. to go to UC Berkeley and then obviously, you know, on to medical school, et cetera. So really interesting incentive to rethink some of how we educate. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, what were some of the things you were drawn to in those high school years and into college? Were you, um, what were you reading? Were you a musician? I'd love to hear about some of those things. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, I've always been a drummer <clears throat> since uh, before, you know, before, before I even was playing any kind of a, a physical drum. I just remember, you know, I'd hear the rain drops falling and I would create, you know, beats out of it in my head. And, and so then once I was in, in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I picked up the drum set, started getting formal lessons. Um, I've since, you know, did that all the way through high school. Um, I'm in a band actually now, even uh, kind of full circle 
Fantastic. After taking a break from it for a long time, I kind of went back to it. Um, and then, uh, you know, really interested in, in through high school and college in in kind of that, that same cross-pollination zone that I had grown up in. You know, I, in college, I, I created a, a major of my own in, in the interdisciplinary studies department. and Medical anthropology and religious studies. I yeah, guess. exactly. Yeah. So, you know, again, that, that hybrid of um, really curious about people's belief systems, how they understand where they are, why they're there, you know, the meaning of, of what's happening to them, and particularly with healthcare, with it to their bodies, etc. And the, uh, I mean, it feels like part of the draw, of course, is that you were in India, which has a very austere almost comes to mind, but let's just say, um, intense belief system religiously affiliated and there are a lot of elements of that that inform and uh, drive lifestyle and lifestyle choices um but then you had the juxtaposition of the west where it's it's very different and is that what was intriguing to you to explore yeah partly i think also just the the richness of my experience in india was what really you know caught my fascination you know there's and we weren't uh you know practicing in any particular religion but just being steeped in that culture and seeing the festivals and the colors and the lights and the flowers and you know the the extent of the celebrations and these big parades of uh, you know carrying the statues of Ganesh these clay statues of Ganesh and Lakshmi and you know, on these uh, shoulder based pallets and then bringing them down to the ocean and releasing them into the water and just like a really beautiful imagery of these colors and flowers. And, uh, and so, you know, that um, really stuck with me. I remember, and, and then when, you know, at UC Berkeley, um, again, just trying to think through how people are using these different, uh, you know, constructs to make sense of the experience that's, that's around us. We all share this common experience yet there's many different paths that that we all you know create uh and my parents were um followers of this uh man named swami Sachidananda, and you know he's just a really beautiful man and, and guru if you will um and one of his main teachings was you know that the truth is one but the paths are many yeah you know, so like we're all on this quest to, to, you know, understand our existence. We all have maybe different ideas of how we can or should, you know, you know, build our lives around that. But really, you know, if we try to think about how we're all connected in that journey, um, I think we would get, a, get rid of a lot of the pain and suffering that, that happens around us um, where we have this belief that, you know, my way is the way and your way is wrong. And that just doesn't make sense. You know, we should yeah. all realize that we're on a shared a shared journey and a shared path and a sh on a shared planet so completely agree with that sentiment it's yeah. uh, we're all attempting to obtain the same wisdom same enlightenment same bliss sensation and we're all going to have our own ways uh, to get there yeah um one quick anecdote i want to share um there's yeah. an artist named uh, uh jitesh kalat who did a series of works around this one event that happened in Mumbai, where there was some pronouncement that Lord Ganesh had blessed the water off of Chaupati Beach. And as I'm sure you know, Chaupati Beach is where on Ganesh Chaturthi, 
a million people congregate to put one of those clay sculptures into the water that you you described. Yeah. And so um, there was this idea that there was a divination of the water. So hundreds of people went and they drank the water. And there was, of course, public health outcry. And before the physicians could assert their thoughtfulness and their wisdom or their authority on the matter, um, several people had had already, you know, uh, partaken in it. Um, It turns out that nobody who drank that water got sick. Nice. (laughs) That's awesome. I've always been drawn to that story. I find it really beautiful and touching. And um, and I, I'm not one for mystical uh, explanations, but I do believe in the power of belief and how that can impact our orientation to everything in the world, including um, disease. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that there, you know, there's a, wonderful literature around that you know uh, there's names like psycho neuroimmunology and you know but various concepts of you know our mind state and its ability to uh, it's very scientific you know to affect the functioning of our immune system the function the functioning of our inflammatory cytokine pathways you know obviously neurotransmitters uh, you know stress hormones cortisol epinephrine I can totally see where if somebody was going to then go drink that water, even if it had some level of bacteria in it, you know, they could just by their belief and their almost ecstatic state have be in this more, you know, sort of anti-inflammatory immune boosted, you know, you know, phenotype in their body and maybe be a little bit more protected than if they had gone to that beach and be like, oh my gosh, I'm not sure if I should go swimming. This is probably, you know, dirty water. Maybe I'm going to get sick and, you know, and, you know, potentially higher risk then because of the the shift in, in the immune phenotype. Yeah. Amazing. I appreciate that uh, discussion of it. I knew you were one of the few physicians I could share that anecdote with. No, yeah, I like uh, it. It's cool. <laughs> so it turns out we both graduated college at the same time in 1996, um, but you didn't go straight to medical school. Tell us about the transition period that's right yeah so and again sort of a theme you know i recognized at that time that you know i was on this road and and there was actually some speed bumps during college i tell my kids this also you know i went into uc berkeley thinking and planning to to be pre-med and i started off uh doing those classes and they were really hard and they were really kind of soulless and extremely competitive and and I had to, uh, you know, I, I didn't do well my first semester, um, you know, and and it kind of kicked me off of the path for a minute there, and I had to do some reevaluation, and so when I that's when I started taking more coursework in, in medical anthropology and religious studies. It was by my junior year that I really realized, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm I can't not do this. I'm going to be a doctor. <laughs> so I completed, you know, continued back on the path of the pre-med classes and was much more grounded and and did great, performed well, um, but made the decision that I wasn't going to complete all those courses in my undergrad, and that I wanted to take some time off after uh, after undergraduate between medical school and. So in between, in those intervening about three years, I uh, went abroad, had connected with a group called Child Family Health International. You know, the conception of health in Ecuador among these people, basically went down there, spent a year working with a mobile operating room. We'd go for the weekend and they would plan probably, you know, anywhere from 25 to 40 surgeries over the course of one weekend. So yeah, before I was even, 
you know, in, in medical school, I would, you know, observe and even scrub in on some surgeries. From there, I went to live with my, uh, my girlfriend at the time, now wife of over 20 years. And, nice. you know, she was at Cornell uh, doing her graduate work. So I went and worked in the nutrition department at Cornell. And that's where I, you know, completed all the remainder of my pre-med requirements, took the MCAT, and then off to med school. Okay. Clearly, this was a calling in you that was, yeah. that was deep. What was the genesis of it? Did it happen in high school or middle school? When did you feel like, I'm going to be a healer, I'm going to be a physician? Yeah, I remember that call in high school. Mm-hmm. And I don't know exactly where it came from. You know, it came from. It was just sort of an instinct. Um, I had uh, my grandpa, my father's father, who um, was a physician. Uh, and actually, uh, interestingly enough, I have his... Um, his doctor bag here that I, I use, I carry around with me <laughs> oh, that's um, for fantastic. my practice. You know, oh, wow. Oh, this was, this was his. Um, and, um, is he still with you by chance? He's not. Okay. Yeah. When did, when did he pass? He passed in, I guess it was early to mid 1990s. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so, he, so he never knew that I had gone on to become a doctor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, but when you came back at 11, I imagine you must have spent quite a bit of time with yes. him. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, definitely, I think that left an impression on me. You 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 go to medical school in Irvine, um, so you're, you're in Southern California. Um, at one point, did you decide, like just as you're saying, um, the how traditional medicine can be a little myopic in focusing in only on a disease or a certain um, uh, uh, body part and not looking at the system overall? Was that in med school, or once you left and in your residency, you started practicing and seeing patients? Yeah, no, that's actually something I brought with me into med school and even through um, through my undergraduate work at, at UC Berkeley. Um, my senior thesis was uh, a, a paper on the comparison of, of homeopathic medicine within the allopathic model. Part of why I went to UC Irvine, um, I made that choice, was that they were developing a complementary and alternative medicine center um, funded in part by the, the work of Susan Samueli and, and the Broadcom Foundation. Um, and so they had this center and they invited me to be part of it. I was able to be on the board and um, fortunate enough, actually, you know, as part of that work and, and our mutual interest in each other, I was received a full scholarship to, uh, to go to school there. So that was really helpful. Fantastic. And, Congrats. And, you know, and they had resources then to develop curriculum. Throughout your career, Sanjay, it feels like you've always been drawn to complex cases. And uh, I'm just curious, is it the intellectual puzzle of it that is appealing? Or um, share with us more the, the draw, the allure there, so to speak. Yeah, and so that was an evolution for sure. Um, you know, I think that, again, probably, probably going back to my childhood, of just having a, a lot of that, that creative thinking time and time to kind of see things develop longitudinally. I was really interested in in the big picture and and doing a deep dive, not doing a superficial dive. Um, but it wasn't until I um, graduated my residency and and came out and started private practice in functional medicine, and and you start to realize that you know the people who seek care in these types of practices are folks who have been missed by the mainstream medical system, who you know are the zebras who have really complex multi-symptom, multi-system health issues, and they've been to many different specialists, and they haven't gotten a diagnosis that's brought them a treatment that's brought them, uh, you know, recovery. Uh, And in particular, one of the um, 
you know, big moments that shifted my focus uh, in my career was um, when my wife was diagnosed with Lyme disease in, in 2007. And she had acquired that, you know, probably at least 10 years prior when we were living in upstate New York at Cornell in Ithaca. Um, she was doing her degree in ethnobotany, so medicinal plant use. We were out in the forest all the time. She was leading, you know, grad students, you know, undergrad students. Nobody warned her or us, and, and we never, she never knew about a tick bite. So, you know, fast forward 10 years, she was having all these uh, unusual symptoms. She had been to the cardiologists and different doctors, et cetera, with no diagnosis. And, and then she had a second tick bite in Mendocino. Uh, and that's when she became acutely oh. ill with a classic Lyme picture. Oh, goodness. Um, okay. And so that process of getting her diagnosed, getting her treated, seeing her recovery, um, and me really going down the rabbit hole of, you know, what is this new entity of, you know, this complex case picture? Um, and that's really kind of the mother of all functional medicine cases. You know, it's just so complicated and multi-layered. And now I can't really see doing anything else. You know, if it's, mm -hmm. if it's something too simple, you know, it's like, you know, maybe I don't need to be spending my time here. Maybe I need to be trying to help those people who, you know, at this point really do require this level of a, of a deep dive. Uh, Sanjay, I find you a very data-driven physician. Now, every physician um, relies on data, but they also, in, in most uh, modalities, have cases that they can look at or uh, a textbook they can go to. Um, I have to believe that um, your focus on complex uh, cases or complex situations where there isn't a lot of uh, predecessor cases uh, situations to go back to um, has kind of made you be this data-driven. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're in this uncharted territory in terms of what these illnesses are doing to people. Um, and, you know, we're dealing with, you know, beyond Lyme disease, we're dealing with complex autoimmune cases, complex gastrointestinal cases. People have, you know, extreme insomnia, hormone imbalances, you know, inflammation, you know, so, so, Again, the idea that many different body systems are involved, combined with my just general love of technology, ways to to gather data out in the field, and you know we're we're giving off as Daniel Kraft, one of my my favorite thinkers on this area, talks about we're giving all this huge data stream uh, on a minute by minute basis, and we're not harnessing any of that. And really, I think you know the way we're doing it right now of having the episodic care where the visit, you know, the visit with the patient and the doctor, which happens once every, you know, maybe one month, maybe three months, maybe once a year. That's the only interaction most, most of the time right now. Um, that's completely broken and, and that needs to be fixed. And that, that needs to be basically, you know, blown up and, and the, the care model needs to include, you know, the patient and their community and nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, health coach, nutritionist, social worker, you know, you know, their social media feed, you know, all this, all this stuff. So this is going to be part of the, the care team. And I was just about to ask you about the California Center for Functional Medicine and the vision for it. And you've basically just shared the ideal staff, which looks a lot like the staff members from your website that you have there. So let me ask this instead. Um, as you were going through, uh, you know, even high school and that first inspiration occurred and then university and then med school, was, was it always a vision to create a center and, like this? No, no, not entirely. Yeah, no, I've learned a lot from working in a lot of different settings, you know, from 
you know, you know, rotations in med school and, and residency, uh, variety of different hospitals, both private and public, variety of different clinics, you know, a lot of community health where uh, it's extremely resource starved and, and, you know, but even at, at our, uh, you know, re our residency program through UCSF, we were able to, to build a integrative medicine fellowship and help the, you know, this whole movement now called integrative medicine for the underserved. Nice. So between that and then going into private practice and, you know, well, and then when you started out in Santa Rosa, you were at a functional medicine facility. I yeah. Yeah. But it was, and even that was still much exactly like we're talking. It was very much just the episodic visit model. Right. And, and that's really what I see all of my, my partners still doing my, my friends and clients and colleagues. Um, but now there is a little bit more of a movement around, you know, uh, community medicine, group visit medicine, and uh, and and again, that's a there's a really huge role there for technology and for you know just as we're all seeing during coronavirus times, you know, telemedicine, video visits, group visits, group classes. We've been putting on a weekly coronavirus um, webinar for, for as part of our clinic. People are welcome to join that every Friday. You know, but just like getting uh, this, this much more this fabric of care out and, and a community sense um, is really a part of our mission. And, and more of a wellness model, kind of not just preventative, but also the right adjective escapes me, but kind of, you know, how can you thrive or live your, your best life? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, people might think that that's a luxury and like, you know, maybe I'll, I'll join a wellness program or maybe my new job will offer a corporate wellness offering, et cetera. You know, but the fact of the matter is, um, you know, that, that shouldn't be optional. It shouldn't be an extra. It shouldn't be a luxury. It should be a basic need. And, and if that were the case, if we offered, you know, everybody this sort of a, a, you know, longitudinal support structure with nutrition and health coaching to help overcome, you know, barriers to health behavior change, which is hard to do. Health behavior change is hard. Yeah. Um, but if we, if we really held people's hands and brought them through that, the burden of chronic disease would markedly shrink. And people then with very real and very severe and very complex health issues, their bodies would reset to a new baseline. And sure, it wouldn't take care of all of it. But if you clean up the gut and you clean up the diet and you clean up the sleep patterns and you get them doing stress reduction, you get them doing some mental emotional healing to deal with old trauma, you know, all these aspects have very real and very direct effects on cytokines, immune pathways, inflammation. You know, even around coronavirus, I think that, you know, if, that's what we teach to our, our weekly class. If people are doing these measures every, regularly and really training their body to work in this optimal zone, this resilient zone, that they're less likely to then go into that severe cytokine storm uh, situation. Tell us about uh, Climb Health. Yeah, Climb Health was again born out of this, uh, this dream and, and vision and desire of mine that we need better visibility on what's happening to people. And so, you know, we have the ability to collect passive data, wearable data, et cetera. Um, but a big pain point is symptom tracking and, and what's happening to, to people as they move through their day slash week slash month. You know, what happens to them when they start a new diet or they start a new medicine or they start a new supplement? Um, and what happens to them with travel or, you know, so basically trying to get some visibility on the symptom fluctuation, the symptom progression, and basically asking the question, 
are you getting better over time? And, and hopefully you are. And then if so, we can go back and try to understand what's moving that needle. It's web-based and it's just a, a symptom tracker connected to a, a database on the back end. And then we can go in and visualize and, and pull the data out of there into a variety of different data visualization softwares. That's great. I'd love to spend some time talking about your work with first responders. And you've done some amazing um, uh, wellness programs that you've established in two particular fire departments. Um, share with us, of course, the scope of what that project is, but also what was, where was the genesis of this idea? Yeah, that was a, it's a big passion project of mine, one of my favorite things uh, that I do at this point. And um, that uh, we were lucky enough to be approached about four years ago by uh, a gentleman, Amore Langmo, from the Berkeley Fire Department. And Amore uh, is a firefighter, and um, he had experienced on his own some of the benefits on his own health, on his own strength and vitality. So they asked us if we would build uh, a wellness program. We've, we've since, uh, you know, starting at that point, deployed that program um, three years in a row to Berkeley uh, Fire Department. And then we, last year from January of 19 to uh, July of 19, we ran the program with the Santa Clara County Fire Department. And this is about a four to six month long program. Uh, there are four core modules. Um, we focus on nutrition. We, we put them through a um, whole foods nutrition challenge, you know, basically a paleo template diet reset with a clean out phase and then a 30 day tr uh, period of time where, you know, they don't eat any grains, they don't eat any sugar, they don't eat any alcohol, they don't eat any processed foods, you know, so it's basically whole foods, um, minimally processed, you know, just as close to the original source as possible and, and eliminating sugar. Uh, second module is stress reduction. Uh, we teach them a lot of different modalities, meditation, use a lot of different apps like Budify, um, Headspace, Calm. Um, we teach them heart rate variability based biofeedback uh, with HeartMath Company. There's little sensors and uh, give a reading on your HRV that you can then manipulate. Um, we go into uh, a sleep module um, where we, you know, basically teach them all the, you know, different lifestyle hacks for, for sleep. And we've also built a template for them <clears throat> where we talk about, you know, post-call, you know, regular schedule, pre-call, and sort of how to really maximize your resilience and, and adjust your sleep based on, you know, the, the dynamic forces that are at work. And then the final module that we built and taught is on cancer prevention. You know, not, not, not everybody understands, but um, firefighters have a, a significant increased risk of cancer. And I think that's in part due to the toxin exposure, um, just by the nature of the job. But I think it's also due to the, you know, the poor firehouse diet and inflammation and eating carbs and sugar to stay awake and the stress and, and the cumulative trauma over time you know, and, and of course, you know, the sleep disruption and all these different pieces play a, a critical role. So we're working hard on that program. We're, we're expanding it. We're pivoting, pivoting it uh, to uh, a fully uh, online format. And over the last couple of weeks, I've had some amazing conversations with a number of different peer support people across the country uh, because another really big pain point for firefighters is you know, behavior health issues, PTSD, anxiety, uh, depression, uh, insomnia, and unfortunately, leading all the way up to suicide. And, you know, suicide is 
the biggest killer of firefighters in the line of duty, which in my opinion is unacceptable. And, and you know, we really have to find a much better way of protecting those who are protecting us. I couldn't have said it any better. You're absolutely right, Sanjay. And it, it's great that you are focusing so much energy and effort in this arena. You're doing such wonderful things in the world, Sanjay. So yeah, uh, thank, thank you, you. for uh, all that you're doing. Thank you for being on our show. It's been great. I think your message will resonate with a lot of listeners. Thank you, Asim. I really appreciate the opportunity. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive and Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.